Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of your air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday february 17th 2012 this week episode 236 cliff comes to you from studio c in beautiful mckees rocks pennsylvania my name is radio joe hughes here with me in the studio is the z-man cliff slotnick it's a fine friday joe yes it is beautiful day in the burg and at the controls is roxy v val bender yes good morning finally friday (laughs) good morning guys Right. Of course, joining us later by phone will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wild. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question. We're going to have an interview with Mr. Tony Havix, Wayne Baker, and Tom Yacobellis. We're going to talk particulate particles, aerosol physics, air filtration device testing, and good times all. Halftime will be part of the show. We've got a little announcement, actually two, from Mr. Glenn Fellman. He promises a breaking news story here at halftime today at IAQ Radio. Of course, we'll go back to our interview and then finish with the roundup and our technical director. Before we get started, we've got to thank our marquee sponsors, Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at Clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X dot com and C-M-M-Online dot com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. To listen live, you can either follow the link on your show invitation or the Go To Show button on the IAQRadio.com website. You can stream past shows directly from our website homepage or, of course, download the show once again, go to the go to the show link at the top of our page. Then you have the option of either streaming or download, downloading from the TalkShoe page. You can also download all of our shows 
from iTunes. Don't forget we have continuing education credits for IICRC and ACAC. And also you can continue your education for the American Board of Industrial Hygiene through our show as well, but now you self-certify. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, just text in your answer. Congratulations. Once again, to Andy Krasowski, Concast Metal Products, Mars PA, for being the first listener to identify genome as the term adapted in 1920 by Hans Winkler, professor of botany at the University of Hamburg. And it's a Greek word that means I become, I am born to come into being. The IQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, February 17th, 2012, has been sponsored by Triska the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their new electronic membership category at www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the research and development firm that under a classified government contract developed the HEPA filter in the 1940s. Back to you, Joe. Good one, Cliff. All right, let's get through today's guest. We've got Tony Havocs, Andrew Anthony Havocs. Mr. Havocs is an honors graduate from the Georgia Institute of Technology. His bachelor's degree is in mechanical engineering. He is a certified hazardous materials manager, a certified industrial hygienist, and a registered professional environmental engineer. He's got nearly 20 years of experience in environmental health and safety consulting, and he's a past chair of the American Industrial Hygiene Association's Workplace Environmental Exposure Limit Wheel, W-E-E-L, committee that has set over 100 exposure limits for hazardous agents. We've also got Mr. Wayne Baker. He's a graduate of the University of Minnesota's Institute of Technology. Wayne is a licensed professional engineer, a certified industrial hygienist with over 30 years of experience in the operation and maintenance of various building types, including 26 years professional level in environmental consulting, construction, and energy conservation. He has worked as an air quality professional on a full-time basis for more than 18 years now, providing a unique combination of education and experience as a forensic engineer, building scientist, and occupational hygienist. He's also been a guest here on IAQ Radio twice in the past. It's been quite a while, though. Tommy Yacobellis. Tom Yacobellis is the president of Ducts National Service Team. He's got over 25 years of experience in the design, installation, and restoration of HVAC systems and over 20 years specifically in the HVAC remediation industry. 
Prior to becoming president of Duck's National Service Team, Tom was the founder and president of Duck Busters. Tom joins us from Florida. He's also had extensive volunteer positions throughout the industry, including being the president of the Indoor Air Quality Association in the past. Let's see if we've got everybody on the line, Val. All right. That should be Tony. Hello, Tony. How you doing? Good. Great, Tony. We got you. And how about Wayne Baker? Do we have you on the line? I'm here, Joe. Excellent. And Tommy. Yes. All I'm right. Here with you, Joe. Beautiful, beautiful gentleman. Thanks for joining us. Do you want to? You want to do some music? Go for it. Why not? Particle man, particle man, <laughs> doing the things a particle can. What's he like? It's not important. Particle man, is he a duck or is he a speck? When he's underwater, does he get wet or does the water get him instead? Nobody knows. Particle man. All right. Particle uh, men, I guess. Particle men. We've got them here. All right, gentlemen. Let's start out with Tony. Tony, how about a little bit of background on particulate? What is particulate? Um, why is it important? Well, uh, first of all, particulate is actually an adjective that describes a material that has particle-like characteristics. And you got We use it colloquially as a noun to describe particles or particle-containing material. A particle, you can call it a, a small discrete object. It could be either solid or liquid or both. <clears throat> maybe chemically homogenous or may have a variety of chemical species. But I actually like, and probably Wayne does too, the term aerosol for the topic today because, you know, we consider that to be a grouping of liquid or solid particles suspended in gas, in this case air. Uh, and that particle size can range from, say, one nanometer, which is 0.001 micrometers, up to, say, 100 micrometers that, that we really want to look at in terms of health effects, contaminants, and the like. Okay. I'm glad you brought up that aerosols uh, is a better term, I guess, for what we're going to discuss today, and uh, particulate. And they, they can be either solid or liquid or both. And I, maybe you could expand on that a little bit. What's a vapor? Is a vapor a solid or liquid, or is it uh, something that would fall into that category? Well, yeah, if you look at the materials in general, you've got something that's a vapor that actually exists um, on an atomic scale floating around in the air. Once it starts to condense into a uh, somewhat of a solid material, but, uh, basically liquid hanging in the air, then it becomes what we would call an aerosol. It can actually become really solid, you know, like ice, and then it really is a solid floating around in the air. And each of those aspects um, yeah, it ranges over a continuum. It's not just it's one or the other. You have you have a, a kind of ranges on there. So you may actually have a, a solid particle with actually liquid on top of the solid particle, and you may have vapor adhered to the particle as well. So there's there's differences that you can actually see out there. Okay. And can you talk to us a little bit, Tony, about the aerodynamics of these different aerosols and, and why that's important with respect to we're going to talk specifically about determining whether or not our equipment is working properly, especially our air filtration devices. We'll talk a little bit about HEPA vacuums as well, but maybe you could give us a little background on the aerodynamics issue. Well, you know, you, you, could, probably, you could probably refer to aerodynamics as the mechanics of aerosols, and um, that's essentially what it is. How do they function? How do they operate? How do they move around? For the 
importance today, you know, the aerodynamics of aerosols that govern how they behave from being deposited in the lungs to being captured by an air sampling device or a pollution control device like a, like a filter. In the case of HEPA filters and the testing of HEPA filters, which is the primary talk we're, we're discussing today, it affects both the efficiency of the filter as well as the ability to test that efficiency uh, either in the lab or in the field. And within that size of, uh, of looking at aerodynamics, we're talking like, again, less than less than 100 micrometers all the way down to, say, one nanometer. The aerodynamic aspects and mechanic size, whether it's a pollen, whether it's a mole, whether it's asbestos, lead dust, drywall dust, they have densities, they have shape factors that affect how they move around in the air, how they might be captured, how they might deposit in the lungs. They have some differences. So, you know, pollen's probably got a density, you know, say about 1.4 1.5 versus lead, which is... 11, say 9 to 11, depending on the type of particle, versus molds is typically like pollen. So the density makes a difference, but also the shape. You've got you know, long, thin fibers or long, thin mold spores that will actually act aerodynamically like their thin side, which is the long side. So each of those plays into what it means to be able to move around in the air, be captured in the air, both from a sampling standpoint as well as a, as well as a filtration standpoint. Let's let's bring Wayne in for a second, and then we'll we'll get back with Tony in a moment. Wayne, anything that you'd like to add on those first subjects we brought up? I don't think so, Joe. In, in fact, I think uh, Tony is going to be in a better position simply because I'm stuck on a cell phone today to respond to the the bulk of those types of questions. Okay. I hope I'm still coming through. Okay, you sound great. No problem. All right, Tony. Let's go back. We talked a little bit about the aerosols and the mechanics of aerosols, which uh, we talk about with respect to aerodynamics, or that's another way of, of describing what aerodynamics is, the mechanics of aerosols. Let's talk a little bit about the HEPA filters themselves. Can you give us a little bit of a, a background on HEPA filtration and where it came from, essentially, and where we're at today? Yeah, the HEPA filter itself uh, began in the early days of World War II, when the British had actually captured a paper filter material from the German gas mass canisters, brought it over uh, to the U.S., uh, the Chemical Warfare Services Laboratory. They looked at it. They found out it happened to actually be made of uh, crocidolite asbestos uh, dispersed in some, some grass fiber. It had really high particle retention characteristics better than at the particular time, let's say, English using wool filters. And so the U.S. tried to reproduce it did some testing on it and found that it was about 99.96 to 99.975 percent efficient. And so then, then they went out looking for, you know, how could they make use of something like this for uh, smoke filters in the field of military side of things. And one of those researchers that was working on that, Langmuir, actually then looked at some of the background basis for how do those filters actually work and what are the mechanisms that, that, that operate on the aerodynamic side that actually how good those filters are, which led to some of the background that we have on how do you get a high efficiency particulate air filter? How do you test it with something like dioxyl phthalate? And it eventually became that the filter test was uh, dioxyl phthalate. But, you know, his analysis later got picked up and was looked at by other individuals who continued to work on that. And eventually they figured out that 0.3 micrometers was a, a, a critical size for testing of those filters which became the critical aspect of the, of the 
of the testing of the filters. And as, as they were doing that, they had a particular air filter known as a collective protector filter. And they became known as absolute super interception, super efficiency filters, but the most widely named uh, term for those types of filters was called the HEPA filter, which was an acronym coined by Humphrey Gilbert, who was a former Manhattan Project safety engineer. And he, he actually coined it as the high-efficiency particular air filter units. And there was born the HEPA filter designation. And it was, it was designed originally to have a minimum particulate removal efficiency of about 99.95%, and that was later changed to 99.97%. And, Tony, let's get into the um, what the filters are made of. You mentioned that the first ones were chrysidolite. As I understand it, there are a lot of things. You know, obviously we've replaced the chrysidolite. I don't think they still make HEPA filters with chrysidolite anymore. We've got other issues with that. But... What types of other materials do we use now to produce and to manufacture these these HEPA filters? Well, they they quickly actually switched over to a glass fiber filter material, and um, several reasons why you want something like a glass fiber filter material because it's high temperature resistant. Manufacturing process makes it easy, and then you do have um, some other fibrous materials that have been used and continue to be used in mixes whether that's on the synthetic side or whether that's, uh, you know, uh, some modified paper fibers. But uh, typically you'll see something like a, like a fiberglass filter, which has a, has a good efficiency, and you get good uh, fiber design itself. Now, Tony, let me clarify something. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've also seen these called high-efficiency particulate and high-efficiency particulate air and high-efficiency particulate arrestance filters. Where did the word arrestance come from? Um, I, I'm not for certain where it actually got pulled into the, to the aspect. I understand. But in terms of, uh, of, of what you're looking at is you're, you're looking at the filter itself and how it reacts on a particular pressure drop. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Tony. Tommy, we still have you on the line. Yes, you do. Oh, there you go, Tom. You just have that voice made for radio, let me tell you. Um, let's go into the big picture a little bit, Tom. We've talked a little bit about the background, and actually this was a good place to, to break and go into a little bit about you're a field guy, all right? You're not one of these scientists, and uh, I'm not either. I, I play one on the radio from time to time. But, uh, you know, you're a field guy. You're out there. You're doing everything. You know, air systems cleaning. You have been in the um, you know maintenance, and and you've installed HVAC systems in the past. Uh, but more importantly, lately you've been doing a lot of HVAC cleaning and restoration. Why is it important for us to have some kind of a standard for determining if the equipment you're using is actually filtering at the at the levels you think it is? Well. <clears throat> One of the reasons why we need a standard is because there are numerous standards out there right now that call for HEPA-filtered portable equipment to be used. For example, IICRC S500, 520, the NAFCA standard ACR 2006, EPA guidelines. We also have uh, uh, ACA standard. We have uh, just numerous standards that are calling for HEPA-filtered equipment to be used. Even the, even the new lead document, uh, which calls for a minimum of a MERV 11, at least the proposed document, uh, suggests that 
that specific level must be achieved for some reason. When you get into the field, though, it really is a whole different story. When you get into the field and you start taking a look at do these machines actually achieve this level, we'll quickly find out that they, many of them do not. Now, that doesn't, have, that doesn't bear on the manufacturers at all. You're talking about machines that are on a daily basis taken apart, put back together. In some cases, you're using one, two to hundreds of these machines on projects. And we seem to put a great deal of emphasis, multiple industries have put a great deal of emphasis on these machines are the axis upon which all remediation turns, whether it's mold remediation and mechanical system cleaning, doesn't matter. This is a key component of most standards in the United States when it comes to remediation. In some cases, about 20 years ago, we started having some specific jobs that required us to validate the machines when we were going on site. And the validation that was required, the only one that I knew of in-field validation was at the in the NADCA standard, and it called for an in-field diethylphthalate test, one that Tony talked about. You still there, Joe? I am. Yeah, go yeah. for it. I just, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm assuming you're going to say that wasn't easy to do. That's correct. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure we're still with each other. <laughs> that was not easy to do. In fact, which we, we attempted to do it many times. It's very expensive. Very few people could do it. And if you were in a critical situation, surgical rooms or some place that you absolutely had to validate that you were capturing those particles, you, it, it would became close to impossible to get it done in many cases. We knew of a number of Sam Cavino and folks like Tony and Wayne who were out uh, experimenting uh, with laser particle meters. But in projects that I conducted myself, when we would put laser particle meters side by side, different brands would give different readings. And this was caused a level of, of concern to us that I didn't understand. I needed certainly needed people a lot smarter than me to figure out why this was going on. The project that we did was with Holly Bailey. Holly Bailey, as you know, is an engineer in South Florida, and she had asked, I was president, she had asked years ago, Tom, why can't we just have a standard where people roll their machines up, we can perform a simple test on it, and then let the machine go inside? Turns out, I frankly, I thought this was going to be a fairly easy standard to set. As you know, I've been a chair and have been involved in many standards in the industry. Turns out that this one isn't. Uh, turns out that this one requires really serious science. So, you know, the reason why we need this standard is to, and what we're hoping that this standard will do is, is that all the standards exist out there currently that require a HEPA filtration device to be used will then link back to this standard and say, in order to comply in these specific environments, it must achieve this level placed according to the standard. Tony, no. Tom was talking about why we need this standard. He's the field guy. You know, he's been told before in the past that, hey, you've got to validate whether or not your machines are working. And I, I assume a lot of times, because I came from the old asbestos world, and we, we vented everything outdoors, I mean, all, I'd say 95% of the time. Not that we wanted 
to, um, you know, spew asbestos particles or whatever other dust and dirt we were removing to the outside, but certainly it was better than putting it back in somebody's building. Nowadays, in the indoor air quality world and also with the way buildings are designed, it's oftentimes more difficult to vent things to the outside. So Tom was talking about, you know, how important it was to have some standard to validate how well our machines are working. What I'm curious about is what exists already out there? What I know you've done research on this. You've tried to figure out, okay, are there standards for testing air filtration devices for HEPA filters, et cetera? Can you give us a little idea of what's already existing? Well, I, I can also I can kind of do that and wrap it into your question about arrestance. Um, I'm not sure when the, when that term actually popped into the vocabulary, but I can tell you that, that you know when I was talking about efficiency, 99.97%, uh, percent efficient, you're talking essentially particle counts. And that's counts as opposed to mass. And an arrestance test, you actually load the filter with a mass of, of dust. And you check, and particularly with arrestance, it's a bigger size dust as opposed to a spot uh, spot test, which actually does a little bit smaller size dust. And you load it, and you weigh it, and you check it from that standpoint. But when you're looking at a HEPA filter, um, you need something that actually gives you a better idea for uh, truly high efficiency, which really means you need something better than just a mass weighting. You're, you really are looking at more directly the particle sizing. Now, there have been methods developed for laboratory-based testing of HEPA filters, just the filters themselves. They've been in place on the military standards for years and used in clean rooms and the like. Um, but in terms of a in-field testing, there's been some, but even, even, even there it's still fixed HEPAs in the same place at the same time, and not portable units that we see typically on an asbestos abatement job or a mold job or aerospace cleanup or a hospital. So the type of, of tenant design for some of the things that are out there aren't really uh, applicable to what we've got. So if you look at, for instance, the some of the ASHRAE uh, guidelines for field testing of, of uh, systems for removal efficiency in situ by particle size and resistance to flow, it says it's not it's not to be used for HEPA filters. It's not really designed for that. We also have some unique characteristics with, with portable units that you don't have with typical in-place locations. The, the velocity going through the filters is actually a lot uh, higher, and the exhaust <coughs> is much, much higher. Okay. Cliff? Yeah, uh, Tony, what is isokinetic sampling? Um. You know, to, to put it in, in simple terms, you've got uh, an airstream that's moving at a certain speed with particles in it. And when you sample, you want to collect an air sample at the same velocity of the airstream that's, that the particles are moving in. And by velocity, I mean both the speed and the direction. And if you fail to collect the sample at both the same speed and the same direction, you're not really capturing all the particles uh, representative of what they really are as they actually exist in the air. You may be capturing one size more relative to another, or you could be actually depositing some of the filters on the sampling head or the transport tubing and the like. So what we're trying to do is capture it, it as it gets pulled in like it was actually uh, in a duct or some type of location where it's actually flowing. If you don't do isokinetic sampling, um, you can get different results than what than what are actually really in the air. So your measured results could be, say, four times higher or four times lower. 
So if I had a thousand particles being counted under certain circumstances, I could actually be measuring them with a meter at 250, or I could be measuring them at 4,000, even though in the air there are actually a thousand particles. And that's that's the reason why we have to be considerate of the isokinetic sampling. And it is size dependent. The smaller particles aren't as adversely affected by anisokinetic sampling. Uh, as the bigger particles, but we can see it in, in the one micrometer and upsized particles in general. You know, and I think that in answering that question, you brought up another issue because I've, I've been part of this standard development process. I'm somewhat familiar with what's going on here. It's not only are we testing the number of particles coming through, but we're testing them at different sizes and as you just explained, you know, they don't act the same when they're, when they're different sizes, and then we've got different shapes and so on. So I think what we've done, if I'm not mistaken, Tony, is to kind of narrow it down and, and look at, let's, let's see if we can figure out if the 0.3 micrometer particles are, are being reduced at a, a sufficient level. Is that somewhat accurate? You know, that is, and it kind of brings up the whole idea of the uh, of the point which you, you have the most penetrating particle. And, and the concept is I kind of started off with at the 0.3 micrometer size, you know, derived from some of the older tests. And in reality, that's not always the most penetrating size. It could be down around point, uh, 0.1 instead of 0.3. Um, so from that standpoint, it does shift based off of some of the velocity characteristics of how it's moving through the filter. And so you got to be considerate of those other things. But we, we're definitely looking for, you know, what is that point and how do we monitor that so that we can perhaps catch the worst-case situation on the filter and use that as our basis. But we still can't ignore those other particle sizes because they are significant. You've got bacteria in the range of, say, 0.8 to, to 2 micrometers in size. You've got molds as small as, you know, penicillium, which could be down around the 1, and then you've got alternaria, you know, way up around 22 to 80 micrometers in size. So you've got a range of issues and particle sizes in terms of the aerodynamics that you have to look at when you're looking at what do you test and what do you choose as a test method. You know, I want to go to a break after this, Tony, but before we do, I want to clarify something with you here. The most penetrating particle size, at first they thought it was 0.3 micrometers, as I understand it, when they reviewed some of the research that was done, they determined, and did some additional research, they determined it was more like 0.1 micrometers, but we still kind of figure it's 0.1 to 0.3. And as I understand it, as you get smaller, these HEPA filters are actually more efficient, and as you get larger, they're more efficient than 99.97%. Is that accurate? That's that's pretty accurate. The the most penetrating point sits around 0.3, and it can shift downward as you increase velocity and different flow characteristics through the filter. But as you get higher, they do get generally generally much more efficient. And as you get lower, they get efficient, with the exception of a little spot down around 10 nanometers, where, where they appear to lose efficiency again. And that's what I that was you you led on. That's beautiful. Now. Let's just talk for one moment about what a nanoparticle is. And then, so at about 10, you say they lose efficiency again. Is that at 10 or below 10? Um, it begins right around 10, depending on whose data you're looking at. Here on down, you see a, a dramatic 
decrease in efficiency uh, of the HEPA filters. Now, what you have to understand is when they do some of these tests for this, they're keeping this particle separated. There is a natural tendency for these nanoparticles to agglomerate and then act as they catch up together as bigger particles, and that happens fairly quickly. So the concept of them being particularly weak at, say, 10, 10 nanometers, 5 nanometers, 3 nanometers, uh, presumes that they're actually staying separated, and that usually doesn't actually happen. They end up grouping, and so the efficiency of the filter, even though you, you say it, the particle size isn't so uh, efficiency isn't so good at that particle size, what, what happens in reality it is more efficient than what, it's, when, what you think it is. And just to clarify for listeners, um, we've got 0.1 micrometer particles. How much smaller would a 10 nanometer particle be than a 0.1 micrometer particle? Well, a 0.3 micrometer particle is 300 nanometers. A 0.1 micrometer particle is 100 nanometers. So we're talking 10 versus 100 versus 300. Got it. Got it. Great. Thank you, Tony. We're going to go to our break. We're going to bring all three of our gentlemen back after. We've got Tony Havix, Wayne Baker, and Tom Yacobellis. But let's thank our sponsors. And then we've got a news item from Glenn Feldman. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. 
Okay, we're back. We've got Glenn Fellman joining us today. Do we have music for Glenn? Oh, oh no. Glenn? I don't know if we're going to get sued over that one or not, Glenn, but we got you. Hello, I'm here. Hello, Glenn. Welcome. What's news, buddy? Oh, I got some good stuff for you guys today. I got one piece of news, which uh, broke this morning, although it hasn't been widely discussed, and then I got an exclusive. It'll be heard for the first time on this show, and it's a good one. Great. So let's get started with the uh, the one that came out this morning, which is that the Restoration Industry Association and the Clean Trust, formerly known as IICRC, have signed a Memorandum of Understanding and the organizations are encouraging a spirit of cooperation between their members. Uh, it's big news. It just came out today. The board of directors of the Restoration Industry Association and the board of directors of the Clean Trust have approved this memorandum of, of understanding that will establish a working relationship between both organizations. Under the MOU, the senior executive leadership of each group will keep the other aware of applicable functions and activities related to natural disaster mitigation measures, indoor environmental issues, and other issues of shared interest. Their goal is to increase cooperation and coordination between the organizations. Uh, the shared knowledge will help RIA members and the Clean Trust registrants provide leadership and promote best practices, according to a press release that came out this morning. Things RIA is very pleased that our organization has entered into this agreement, said RIA President Frank Eden. The spirit of cooperation is already evident between our organizations, and the recent changes at the Clean Trust will benefit everyone involved in the restoration cleaning industry. RIA looks forward to working with the Clean Trust on a number of initiatives, said Mr. Heaton. In addition, the Clean Trust and RIA will support and promote each other's public awareness and education efforts. The organizations will meet at least annually to evaluate the progress and implementation of this MOU. And finally, with this uh, there's a quote here. With the Clean Trust certification programs and standards and capabilities, we're in a position to assist allied industry associations like RIA, said Daryl Paulson, the Clean Trust chairman. Collaboration with others in the industry will continue to propel our mission to further advance the industry and provide the best job uh, available to all stakeholders. So there you go. RIA and the Clean Trust. Moving closer together. Getting back together. They were on, the off, then on, off, and on again, right, Cliff? No? I was off, off on, on, off, off. Now it's on again. Now we're so back on. <laughs> the Z-Man. It's on. <laughs> he was intimately it's on for involved. Sure. All right. What, what else do you have, Glenn? All right. Well, this one is a really big one. This one is something that nobody knows except for a small group of people, and, and now it'll be a big group of people because it'll be every one of your listeners. Uh, press release is getting ready to show up uh, later out today, and it's coming out jointly from the Restoration Industry Association, the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization, and the Indoor Air Quality Association. Great news. Uh, in today's edition of Standards Action, published by the American National Standards Institute, you will read that ANSI has approved ISO slash RIA 6000 1-2011, a standard titled Evaluation of Heating 
ventilation and air conditioning interior surfaces to determine the presence of fire-related particulate as a result of a fire in a structure. Uh, we learned about this a few days ago when ANSI informed the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization of the approval of the standard. It is the first ANSI-approved standard for IESO, and it was produced in very close cooperation with the committee convened by the Restoration Industry Association and populated with a lot of members of the Indoor Air Quality Association as well. The completion of this standard represents the efforts and expertise of many individuals, and we would like to acknowledge the IAQA and IESO boards who provided the funding, leadership, staffing, and guidance necessary for this important milestone, said Brad Hart, chairman of the IESO consensus body. The standard has been in development since early 2009 and will be used in the field to help determine if fire-related residues have been deposited on HVAC interior surfaces. Standard does not determine what materials have been burned in the fire or what specific materials have been deposited. The standards development takes time and the collective efforts of many, said Ms. Bellis on the show here today, who was the chairman of the standards development subcommittee for the standard. Danny Greenblatt was the vice chairman. Special thanks and recognition go out to our committee, the RA board, and the ISO consensus body. This standard will provide science to substantiate what restoration and remediation contractors recommend following a fire, said Mr. Yacobellis, who made comment on this after the, uh, after the news segment. The standard uses char as the primary indicator and soot as the secondary indicator of fire-related particulate. It also requires the quantification of char or soot concentrations to allow comparisons with a control sample since merely identifying the presence or absence of char is not sufficient. The uh, accomplishment represents a major milestone for RIA and IESO, said RIA President Frank Hayden. It illustrates what can be done when organizations collaborate for the good of the industry at large. Congratulations to the subcommittee for creating this standard, the first of its kind for the industry. This new IESO RIA standard will be available for purchase as either a PDF or as a printed booklet of starting March 16th. Uh, you can find it online on the uh, websites of the Industry Quality Association or the Restoration Industry Association, again, starting March 16th. For more information about IESO, you can visit www.ieso.org. So congratulations to IESO. Congratulations to IAQA. RIA, and on the line with us today, or on the show with us today, congratulations to Tommy Acabellas, the first chairman of an ISO subcommittee, to have his standard make it all the way through and get ANSI approval. Great job. <laughs> well done. All right. Well, so it, th- it can't happen, huh? We- it takes a little while, yeah, but it, it, it can't happen. All right. Well, let's bring the guys back on here. We've got Tony Havix, we've got Wayne Baker, and we've got Tommy Acabellas. Tom, why don't we start with you? Tom, this was a long time coming. IESO has their first ANSI-approved standard, and you're talking to us today about the next or, or one of the ones they have in the pipeline. Any comments on, on what Glenn just announced? Well, you know, we're elated, obviously. It took significantly longer than we thought, but it really, the entire process, uh, first of all, it was thoroughly needed. Uh, you can't just go around building, sniffing uh, air conditioning ducts to determine if they were impacted by fire.
fire-related events, especially when working with insurance adjusters. So our thinking behind this was to have a bona fide measurement system, and I, I have to give a plug into Laurie Street, who helped develop the entire protocol for testing, for doing the surface testing, which may go on to be a larger protocol for RIA in the future. Uh, we met every week on this standard for uh, on the phone the entire at through telemarketing calls, and we met for. Um, I think it was 58 weeks straight to put the standard together every Thursday, hour and a half, and a fantastic, fantastic committee that we had. Everyone on the committee just meshed well, and I'm just very pleased. I'm very happy for IESO, for um, for IAQA, and, and I'm glad to see that we have something hit the streets, and I'm just as excited about what I'm sharing, which is, which is the... Uh, yeah, filtration standard. All right, well, Tom. Thank you. Let's get let's get Tony back. Joe, I just wanted Go to ahead, bring Tom. up one other. Joe, I did want to bring up one other point. Um, as you can you can hear, just the level of professionalism we have with Tony and Wayne is, is as far as I'm concerned, it's off the scale. Uh, I, I do want to let you know that the the problem that we're dealing with with these air filtration devices is. It's a different scale than the nano scale. In fact, what we're finding out, what we have found out and known for some time, is most of these machines leak severely. We're not talking about nanoparticles or small particles coming through. In some cases, we have millions and millions of particles emerging out of the back ends of these machines. I don't even want to say in some cases. In many cases, most of these machines... Uh, a significant number of these machines that are coming off of the vehicles and whatnot are leaking, and the, and many of them severely. And it doesn't necessarily mean you can't judge it by how they look. The problem is much, much larger than the nanoscale. The problem is virtually on every job site that's out there. You can find machines that are leaking, and because these machines through so many different industries, the scale of the issue is, is really wide. That's the reason why we elected it as the next one to go, because it affects every single industry. Folks are actually thinking they're getting HEPA-filtered air out of these air filtration devices. It's just not true in most cases. But there is no in-field measurement that is standardized to test them. Great point, Tom. I really, I really appreciate you brought that home to a, a level where people out in the field will understand it. Tony, let me let me ask you a question on that. I don't know if you know the answer to this or not, but maybe you could give us your best educated guess. Why do you think it is that Tom, you know, is is so certain that there are these issues? Or maybe let me put it this way: Why do you think these machines are failing? Why do you think, you know, what, what is it? Is it bypass or things going around the filters? Is it, um, you know, blowout of the filters? Is it just uh, poor maintenance of, of the equipment, or is it all of the above? Well, it's, 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 it's all of the above. But I think you see, uh, particularly with, with the use nowadays, you, you don't see decks on the gaskets. You don't see the maintenance that was perhaps done back in the 80s when there was a strong concern for um, asbestos and the threat of asbestos, um, and you don't see the level of manufacturing on the filters themselves and the quality control that you might have seen you know, 
uh, two and a half decades ago. And so it's a combination of, uh, of all those things, and you haven't had people really checking them the way that you might have back in the late 80s, early 90s, when there was some work that was done on particularly just um, pre- and post-filter looking at some field tests that were done. Let's go. Wayne, I just want to make sure if you have anything you'd like to add, please jump in here. I guess the one point that I would like to bring out, Tom, is that we're trying very hard to develop a standard that can be implemented using uh, test equipment that is of reasonable cost and that is based on the use of naturally occurring background particulate matter or aerosol, aerosol so that this method can be accessible to everyone. Uh, but there are some limitations, some difficulties, some very significant technical difficulties in making this happen. In the testing that I think Tony uh, described earlier and, and uh, re- relying on diactyl phthalate or other types of artificially generated aerosol, you've got a cloud, if you will, of these particles moving through the airstream of very consistent size and known characteristics and by that specifically, I mean their light scattering characteristics, their refractive index, and the like. When we move into using naturally occurring stuff that just happens to be floating around in the air in the building or space in which you may be using one of these devices, uh, the char- those characteristics uh, fluctuate or vary widely. Number one. Number two, we're, we're, we're trying to step back and use laser particle counters, optical particle counters, that, again, have come down in price recently, but they have their own set of limitations. And when you take the combination of the uncertainties and variation involved in naturally occurring background aerosol and the limitations of the devices that we're going to apply in this situation, we have to be very careful about how we collect the samples, make sure that we uh, take the results, the numbers that we get from these devices, and and uh, subject them to some type of statistical analysis. It's not our, again, it's not our intent to make this some highfalutin, super difficult. And eventually we hope to put this into uh, a spreadsheet format uh, so that folks can plug in the numbers and push go and get a result that they can, that they can rely upon. Uh, but there are some very significant technical difficulties uh, in, in, in the, the, the two areas I've just described. But I, by got, the same token, Joe, this, this is Tony. Good. Um, the, the, need, the need, as Tom put it out there, is really there. We did a, 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 a hospital project where we brought a number of brand-new uh, portable HEPA units on site, and um, most of them failed, brand-new. Uh, and Most of them were due to gasket seals and the like, but there were still some issues even after that fact. And so when you're looking at the, the need, the need is the need is out there, but there are some, as, as Wayne put it, some some issues that we have to deal with, whether that's isokinetic sampling, whether that's carbon brush particles from the motor, whether that's minimum particle counts that we need to have on a statistical basis, um, and and to make it usable in the field is, is what Wayne and Tom and I really are trying to push because we realize if you make a standard and it's not going to be easy to use out in the field, it's not going to get used. Okay. Yeah, I, I've got a question. I, I, I guess I'm just going to throw it out there. You know, it seems to me that if you had a brand new unit and, and it failed, or multiple brand new units, 
that indicates, you know, one of three things. You know, one, that these things were not assembled properly or designed properly, or that perhaps something happened in shipment, that these things were dropped. You know, they don't come equipped with shock absorbers. You know, what I'm wondering, is it a design problem? Is it a manufacturing problem? Or is it impossible to keep these things, in? you know, the, the parts in proper alignment with the gaskets when these things are handled by workmen, you know, who may drop them or be a little bit rough with them? And, and Tom, Tom, let me answer your question with leading into the idea that this is what we need to do, testing of multiple units of different ages, of different applications, to be able to get the statistics on what's really going on with these and where are these potential sources and how bad are they in terms of their failures. This that, is Tom. Tom, please. One of the, uh, I, I'm enjoying myself working with Tony and Wayne and the group Scott Armour was on the last testing go-around. We have another testing event coming up next month where we're doing a, another series of machines to validate our findings. One of the cool things, uh, these guys are really something else to watch when you see them. I, I honestly mean it. I've just enjoyed working with them so much. And uh, one of the machines, they basically injected a fluorescence powder into to see where the bypass was using black lights coming around the back end. And i got to tell you, the level of research in this is just unbelievable to see. But at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is, to, to answer Cliff's question, is, you know, pretty much if someone writes a standard, IICRC, NADCA, ACA, anyone who writes a standard and says, we believe you must have a HEPA-filtered machine in there, they're saying that for a reason. They're saying that a HEPA-filtered machine is needed to capture particles for a reason. In the duct cleaning industry, for example, when some of the equipment that's used that sits outside houses or gas pipe equipment generates tremendous particle loads that actually bypass through the bags and enter back into the house again. So when consumers are thinking that their actual their houses are actually being made cleaner, uh, we saw it in the EPA study many years ago, the CRADA study with the EPA that we were involved with with NADCA, that a lot of times when the dirt is emacerated and sent through these filters, it actually just recontaminates the house while the cleaning is going on. So the question is, are we really going to get serious about this? Are we using these machines to really keep the air clean? And are they actually keeping the air clean and can we validate it? And so it's really a straightforward question, but quite complicated um, and frankly, a little bit fun to work on because it's new science. It's all new science at this point. You mentioned that you had done testing of machines. A lot of them failed. We're developing a standard. This standard's not going to be ready for, I'm guessing, a year, okay? Maybe even if it's six months, whatever. In the interim, we have a lot of people out there that would like to do some kind of a quick check on this equipment in the field to try, and obviously you're doing that now. Can you describe for listeners the way you check the machines now because you are obviously intimately involved with the development of the standard. You probably have an idea of where you think it might end up. Can you give us the best way to do it now? Yeah, the, the way I do it, and, and for the most part Wayne uh, does it as well, is we use the background count um, of particles using a multi-channel uh, optical particle counter that gets differing sizes. We take some background counts inside of the space where it's 
the unit is actually operating. Um, and if necessary, I've actually used a leaf blower to generate enough particles and try and get them sustained in the air while we're, we're operating. And you take it close to the intake to get some background on what's actually pulling in. And then Wayne and I both take a, um, a flexible uh, duct off the exhaust out at least what we call 8 to 10 duct diameters, which is the width of that the diameter of that duct um, it needs to be um, the same size, obviously, as the outlet, but 8 to 10 times downstream we need to get before we start looking at actually being able to uh, collect a good uh, a sample. We stick the, the meter up inside of there, try and face it directly into the direction of, of, the, um, of the exhaust, and then we collect samples for periods of uh, one minute, uh, and three sets of them. We also do the same for the for the inlet, and I've done longer periods as well where I need them. And then we do a comparison of the particle counts over that time period. Okay, that's about as sim- that's about as simple as I can explain it. No, that's that's excellent. I I, th- I can picture it as you go through it. It's similar to what I do. I've tried both. I've tried just holding the particle counter right in the exhaust of the air filtration device, I seem to get, and this is not obviously scientific, but I seem to get more consistent results when I do it the way you've described. Although I don't, I've been using what they call lay flat, and I don't know if that's what you meant by uh, flex duct, but uh, I put some lay flat on the end of it typically because it's right out of the box a lot of times. I don't, I don't think there's any major amount of particulate on the inside of it. Is that what you're using or are you using actually the spiral kind of uh, flex off the back? I've used both on the asbestos abatement industry where you where you have to do a hard pipe we use a flex duct um, um and where you're using a, a typical restoration you use a lay flat um that you just duct tape on there well, now we have made some adapters to make it easy for us now I will have to caution you that one of the reasons we're spending the time that we are Wayne and I are is that you know, we've done measurements directly out of the exhaust and you see differences depending on where you're doing it on the exterior coming out of the exhaust, and you have huge differences in velocities. In some cases, it's actually going back in because of the wraparound. And so that's one of the reasons why we extend it out to get good mixing, to get a good average, and to get better flow distribution so that you know you're getting a better representative sample downstream as opposed to just sticking it in the end. Okay. All right, gentlemen. I, we, we're running a little over, but um, does anybody have to run right this moment? I got. I want to bring Dr. Wow in. I know he's going to have some comments on this subject. And um, I can stick around for another 10 minutes, but I don't know what your time is like. We're good. You're good? Yeah, we're good. All right, gentlemen, let's get Dr. Dietrich Wow on. I know he'll have some comments on this, and we want to make sure you have a last opportunity. To- Hello, Dieter. Yeah, well, I do have a couple. Of <laughs> I figured that, Dieter. This is your baby, sure right? You know that I basically, my whole professional life, I uh, work with aerosols. And I like the word aerosols, which, of course, are also particulate matter, but that is fine. And I like it when when. um uh, uh, measured particles. I don't know what a nanometer is. <laughs> With a 10 to the 9th or something like that, I don't care. I only know everything in micrometers. And for those listeners, uh, they may hear microns. 
in the old days, microns were used by biologists and micrometers by physicists. It is the same. It's one millionth of a, a meter. Anyway, uh, as far as the trivia question, I have not looked that up. The only thing, Joe knows that, there was the chemical defense establishment in England. They were, I think, the first ones to test uh, HEPA filters under the auspices of one of my heroes, Dr. C.N. Davies. And they were looking at HEPA filters and efficiency because these mean, nasty Germans had aerosol generators which miraculously produce 0.3 micron particles. Amazing. <laughs> and there I use microns, I meant micrometers. It is the same. Um, but that is a, And Wayne pointed that out just beautifully. A particle, an aerosol, is not an aerosol. A 10 micrometer uh, uh, sphere of gold behaves in air and in the human lung. That's why we are measuring them completely differently from a 10 micrometer sphere that has a density of one. In fact, it's a square root. If it's gold, it's, uh, it's, it acts like a 40 micrometer sphere. It's the square root of the density. The other thing, and it's, it's beautiful. My God, I thought I'm back in my old classes again. <laughs> Another very important thing, and if we just talked about that at the very end, is the approach velocity to the sampler. And that is one of the problems we have. Do we uh, sample in front and in the back? In the front, probably, almost um, at... Um, at the right velocity, at the exit, if we put a particle counter there, is that isokinetic sampling? Probably nobody has ever checked that, including me. No doubt about it. Uh, the other thing is particle size and approach velocity to a filter. Does that influence the efficiency of the filter? You bet. It is incredibly important. And the other thing is we have to watch out also with smaller particles. The collection efficiency due to diffusion goes sky high for small particles. It is just unbelievable. Um, so, I mean, aerosol sampling is a very complex uh, Endeavor. attack on, 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 on trying to check what is in the air of what we are uh, uh, inhaling. And we have to, yeah, the one thing that was not mentioned, but Wayne mentioned that one, that the density and the shape of a particle, of an, uh, an aerosol, is of utmost importance. And you have to know how that one behaves in air. And that is called the aerodynamic equivalent diameter, which takes into account the diameter and the shape. He mentioned it also. By and large, fibers behave aerodynamically more according to their diameter than their length. That's why we get 10 and 20 micrometer long fibers into the alveoli 
even though the atrium, that is the entry from the airways into the alveoli, is only 10 microns or micrometers. Now I'm a biologist. <laughs> um, uh, how the heck does a, a 15, 20 micrometer uh, fiber get there? Because it behaves according to its one micrometer diameter. And Joe knows these wonderful, wonderful pictures that I got years ago where we are in the alveoli and there are asbestos fiber and I don't know how many macrophages are hanging on it trying to chew that poor thing up, <laughs> no, that bad thing up. But anyway, the other thing is, and that is another problem, how many housewives know what the aerodynamic equivalent diameter is? I mean, they have a vacuum cleaner and they have a vacuum cleaner bag in their machine. I have one of those. It's a shop bag. Uh, it, uh, it increases the respirable particles in my house when <laughs> I use that one to pick up leaves. No question about it. Uh, there are many more, but um, uh, what else do I have? The HEPA filter here and asbestos and due to diffusion agglomeration. That is another thing, agglomeration. If you look at the particle size distribution of cigarette smoke, which we did, because we could generate it very easily at the time I was smoking, believe it or not, <laughs> uh, we noticed how particles agglomerate. In other words, they, uh, a virgin cigarette smoke is about a half a micrometer in diameter. And if you measure it two minutes later, uh, it's maybe five microns, because now you have duplexes, triplicates, quadruplets, quintuplets, where particles just adhered. Why? Because there are so many particles that love each other and they hug and kiss, kiss each other. That's called uh, uh, agglomeration. And I better shut up before we use up another half an hour. Dieter, I love it. I'll tell you what, I love you. Thanks for coming on. Um, you did a wonderful job of summarizing our hour-long discussion. So, oh, I, I just want to check, see if Cliff had any final yeah, questions. I, I just had one thing that I wanted to ask Tommy. Uh, you know, when you were talking about testing this equipment, the first thing that came to my mind was using some sort of ultraviolet particle and ultraviolet light. Was that successful, Tom? Yes. Uh, the question is better given to Tony. But, uh, yes, it was successful in showing uh, where the leakage was occurring. So from a, don't know if it will become part of the standard, but certainly from a, a gasket leakage or identification of where the issue might be in trying to do the restoration so the machine can be used, it may be something that we look at in the future. Tony, do you have anything to add? Um, no, I mean, I, I used it because I was looking to see, can we actually visibly see where some of these leaks and some of these issues are? And can you look at some of the visual inspection aspects and correlate them? We actually did that as part of a taking a unit apart to do a, a true visual inspection um, before you would even normally even do the test to make sure it's actually uh, operating properly. And we did see a lot of things that, that made sense. You put you have two blowers in a unit. You can see where the only, only one of the blowers was on because you could see where it got pulled through the one blower. You could see some of the bypass in the gaskets. You could see... Uh, potential holes in the in the uh, in the filter material itself and the like, so very useful. Um, not necessarily something I want to use out in the field uh, all the time, but but certainly very useful for looking at where are those failures occurring. What about yeah, precisely a smoke tube is a very good tool to see where you know air currents are. 
Now, is that the final analysis of anything? No, it is not. But it is a, a, a wonderful tool where you can see what is happening somewhere. You don't know anything about the efficiency and all of that. What about theatrical smoke? You know, theatrical smoke is, is typically now a, uh, a, a glycol. And if you have high leakage, you'll probably be able to see it. But if the flow rate's moving through these devices, when it gets back underneath and then it would come around the side, unless you're coloring it some way um, and coloring it pretty heavily. Um, you know, years ago, you used to use methylene blue as a test product for these filters, and that shows up very well. Unfortunately, once it goes out the other end, it can go all over the place. But it's still very difficult to actually see some of these, some of the things that would be small um, with just that small amount that actually would be coming through. The fluorescence actually works because it deposits in and around the area where you've got the gap so that you look at it after you turn the unit off and the, the area where it's actually come through has deposited around it because of interception and diffusion. Interesting. The last time we used theatrical smoke, Cliff, I couldn't get any of the committee members off the stage for hours. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Tommy. All right, guys, let's do this. Um, Cliff, did you have any others? I'm done. Thanks. What I'd like to do is go around one last time and just ask, is there any, first I want to thank all three of you and of course, Dr. Wow for joining us, but let's go around and start with, uh, Tommy, any final comments and then we'll go to Wayne and to Tony. No, I mean, the, the only thing I wanted to say is that we're working as fast as we can and we're going to, we understand the importance of it. Uh, there is a whole committee behind it, behind this. Uh, uh, Wayne and Tony are leading it, Scott Armour, Sam Trevino, and a whole bunch of other folks right now that I won't go through, but there is an entire committee that will be reviewing all of this, plus IESO is backing us, and so is IAQA. So it, it is a Herculean effort right now to try to get this done. Great. Thank you, Tommy. Let's go to Wayne Baker. Sure. Thanks, Joe. Maybe just one final uh, comment. Uh, one of the primary reasons that I suggested that we have this conversation today on IAQ Radio is that we as a committee um, are preparing for some additional field testing in Chicago March 15th through 17th, and we're trying to get the word out to the manufacturers of these various optical particle counters, laser particle counters, because as Tony pointed out earlier, there is some variation, some differences in the way these machines uh, report the particle counts, uh, as well as uh, differences in the software that allow us to download that data. We, we would very, very much appreciate folks listening today to spread the word to those uh, companies that they work with that produce the particle counters they're perhaps using today. Let them know about this exercise, this event coming up in Chicago next month, and ask them if they would please send not just their machines, not just their particle counters, but their, their uh, manufacturer's representatives or other individuals who are adept and accomplished at using their specific particle counters so that we can use that data as well. Excellent. Thanks, Wayne. I'm, I'm so glad we asked for the final comments because I know, like you say, that was a very big, important part of why we brought you guys on today. Tony, let's get your final comments. And by the way, I know Dr. Wild was a little confused there, but you made a, a lot of really good statements. And I think most of what he was saying was pointed toward what you were saying, and he reaffirmed it. He summarized it beautifully. I want to make sure you have the last chance to add anything you'd like to add. 
Well, aside from the fact that Wayne and I seem to be becoming Siamese twins, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, he mentioned the particle counters themselves, and, and there are differences in the particle counters, and there's actually the laser type or single particle counters, and there's multimeters, which would be like a photometer. They do have differences in use and capability, and, and we actually did try some work with what was called a condensation nuclei counter, where you take uh, water, alcohol, and saturate the particle and grow it to where you can count it with a regular particle counter. And that would be something like, um, without mentioning names, uh, there's a particular company that makes these, and they're pretty popular for the ultrafine. That type and the use of a typical particle counter, we're trying to evaluate to see what you can use and what would be usable for testing these out in the field. And we're seeing that, that they may be able to be used more than one type of meter, but we're going to have to limit the method to make it easier for everybody to use and make it simplified. And that's fine. You know, if you don't, we don't mind names, too. I mean, if you yeah, want to okay mention whoever it is, Tony, that's fine. I mean, I know I've worked with uh, uh, TSI, Met One particle counters. The one that uh, is used a lot in our industries is the Lighthouse. And I'm wondering, are there any other manufacturers, Canamax or Canamox, I believe? Are there any others you'd like to kind of shout out to and, and see if they'll come and help out? Um, there, there's, there's a few. Actually, Gray Wolf, one of your sponsors, now produces uh, is selling a uh, particle counter, uh, as well as uh, BGI. There's some other uh, minor names as well that, that produce them. And of course, you mentioned TSI mm-hmm. um, and the Met One. Um, but there, there are differences in between those, and it's useful for us to have somebody who actually knows how to use that meter also come along with that meter so that we don't have to spend time getting up to speed on using that. And they can give us a little help and learn a little bit. Sure, and I'm sure a lot of those people understand the issues. They deal with these every day. They take tech calls like I know Cliff did for years on his products. So it would be great if we could get them to be more involved with this committee. Gentlemen, anybody have anything else? If not, we're going to close it. And I I just want to thank all three of you again, Tony Havix, for joining us. We've been trying to get you on the show for years now, which is never quite – worked out tony we finally got you wayne baker thanks again we we really enjoy when you join us wayne i noticed by the way it's been like two and a half years i think since that last show we did with wayne it's unbelievable tom yacobellos tommy as always we love having you on anytime you have something to say please come and join us uh, you've been a a real uh, a real uh, champion for the industry for years and we appreciate all of you joining us this week on iaq radio This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, for another great week. Of course, Roxy V, Val Bender, good job. We we were a little shaky there. I think we figured out what our our technical problem was. It was our connection, not you guys. Mm -hmm. So when we called back in, things sounded great. But generally, the recording will be perfect anyway, so we should be good. We'll fix up any little glitches before we post that. I also want to most importantly thank uh, Dr. Dietrich Wow, of course, our technical director, and our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday. By the way, we've got the restoration lawyer next Friday. Ed Cross. Ed Cross. We'll have a great time with Ed. Or Eduardo Cruz. Eduardo Cruz. <laughs> come back and join us next week for the next episode of IAQ Radio.
has been another IAQ Radio production. <laughs>